listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. For 44 years, Linda Pagano was Akron's oldest missing persons case. She's not a missing person anymore. Now she's an unsolved murderer. And wait until you hear what happened to change that distinction. So throw another log on the fire and settle in, campers. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years researching these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hey, everybody. As a matter of fact, Paula, this is a story you worked on just last year, isn't it? It was, Steve. As a matter of fact, I teamed up with the amazing Stephanie Warsmith, one of the Beacon Journal's most intrepid reporters, and together we researched and wrote about the Pacano case. And our story ended with some mysterious bones being sent off for DNA testing. And the results of those tests came back just this summer when it was determined that a skull with a bullet hole was definitely Linda Pagano. Now, she was just 17 years old when she stormed out of her stepfather's apartment in the summer of 1974 and vanished into the night. Now we know Linda wasn't a runaway, but a murder victim. And we've got a whole new mystery on our hands. Who killed her? And helping us tell that story tonight is a very special guest. In 2015, Christina Skates was 22 years old when she became very curious about a notation in a cemetery index about some old bones in an unmarked grave. Christina's dogged investigation helped link those bones to Linda. Christina is actually the best part of this story, and I know our listeners are just going to love hearing how this all unravels. But before we get to Christina on the line, let's get some history out of the way. Who exactly was Linda Pagano? unknown white female bones discovered on February 5th, 1975. The remains were found here on the banks of the Rocky River in Strongsville. Jane Doe had a gunshot wound to the head. Because Linda's body was found in the Millstream Reservation, Metro Parks Police are leading the murder investigation. And unfortunately, the man who might be able to provide some of the answers died in 1990. I think it would be safe to say that he was a person of interest at some time, not a suspect, uh, but one of the last people to see her. Let me take you back to the late summer of 1974. Now, the top hits on the radio were Feel Like Making Love by Roberta Flack. Feel like making... No, is that uh, the wrong one? Uh, feel... Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, you know what? <laughs> Don't test me. <laughs> oh, The Night Chicago Died by Paper Lace. The Night Chicago Died. I don't know that one. Oh, yeah, look that one up. 
And uh, I Shot the Sheriff by Eric Clapton. One. I Shot the Sheriff. <laughs> there you go. Okay, I'm not, I'm not a singer. I'm a podcaster. <laughs> yeah, who, who sings that song? Um, yeah, let's, well, let's keep it that keep way, it that right? Way. <laughs> um, you know, President Richard Nixon had just resigned oh, that same month. Okay. Um, and boxing fans couldn't stop talking about an upcoming match between George Foreman and Muhammad Ali. Oh, An wow. event known as... Rumble in the Jungle. That's the one. And in Akron's Kenmore neighborhood, Linda Pagano was on top of the world. Now, she's a petite girl, just 4 feet 10 inches, 100 pounds. She's got long blonde hair, pretty blue eyes. She's a week or so from beginning her senior year, and her closet is sporting this new school wardrobe. She's got a new gold Mustang. She's got a new boyfriend who's taking her to the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young concert at Cleveland Stadium. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a good time for for Linda. And uh, Linda's best friend would later tell a reporter she always thought Linda had a great life. The two girls had met at Garfield High School and they mostly hung out at Linda's home on Jonathan Avenue. You lived in that area. Yeah. Do you know where Jonathan Avenue have is? have no idea. Okay, well, <laughs> not far from where you grew up. Okay. Yeah. And unlike the best friend who lived in a subsidized government apartment with her single mom, we called them the projects back then, Linda lived in a normal house with a yard, and she had a mom and a stepdad and two siblings, and, and the best friend said it appeared like everyone got along just fine. But... We always put on our best face for company, don't right. we? Right, yes. And not everything was as it seemed. The stepdad, Byron Claflin, he had a reputation for drinking and becoming violent. Uh, he owned a local bar called Hillwood Grill and apparently spent a little too much time sampling his own inventory. Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh, John Tapper wouldn't like that. Uh, bar that, Rescue? Oh, Bar Rescue, yeah. yeah. No, that is not not something that uh, right. is supposed to go with that. Anyway, his, his stepchildren would say he used to drag them out of bed in the middle of the night for some perceived misstep, like leaving a light on, and, and he would scream at them and, and occasionally got physical, sometimes leaving bruises. Oh, my. But not with Linda. Linda was his favorite. He never berated her. He even co-signed for the loan for the Mustang. He often gave her money. Um, those new school clothes, probably paid for by him. He often gave her money for clothes. So he doted on her. He did. And so when Linda's mom, Anne, finally decided to leave Byron Claflin for beating his children... Um, Linda stayed with her stepfather, in part because her mom had a new beau and Linda did not like him. So while the rest of the family relocated to Springfield, uh, Byron Claflin and Linda got an apartment on Carnegie Avenue in Kenmore. That's uh, near Nesmith Lake. Yeah, that's uh, probably around the King's Apartments area. Yeah, right behind the old historic Young's Hotel, which is no longer there, but right there. So, you know, I I think you would have liked Linda, Steve. She seemed... Fiercely independent and just the kind of free spirit that the 1970s embraced. Uh, As a matter of fact, in the summer of 1974, Linda and her best friend hopped in Linda's Mustang and took a trip together to Mississippi. Uh, Linda wanted to visit her birth father and his family, and they had a pretty good time there. Then, as they prepared to leave for Akron, 
Linda announced she wanted to see the ocean. Neither of the girls had ever seen it before. So they pointed their compass east and kept driving till they ended up in Pensacola, Florida, where they shuffled their feet through the white sandy beaches and just thoroughly enjoyed the new experience. This is a very 70s type of thing to do. Yeah, it is. You're right. And, you know, to be honest, you know, I grew up in the 70s. I still can't imagine doing something like that on my own at the age of 17. She just seems like really gutsy to me. Right. She was uh, was willing to, you know, do what it took to get what she, you know, get what she wanted to do. Exactly. A very strong-headed, maybe a little stubborn, but very self-sufficient and and ready to do things her own way. And and I really appreciated that. So we're going to move ahead just a little bit uh, uh, far ahead of that trip to August 31, 1974. The girls are back in Akron. Summer is winding down. Uh, Linda has met a guy she's crazy about. And they head off to that Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young concert together in her Mustang. And she makes it there fine. Um, The band plays 26 songs and two encores. And can you guess their last song? Ohio. Ohio. Yes. Okay, we know that song. That's right. And, uh, And then Linda drops off her new boyfriend and returns home just fine. But there she is greeted by an angry stepdad. Apparently she's gotten in way later than he approved of. And it breaks out into an argument at 4 a.m., Byron Claflin throws Linda out of the apartment, he will later tell police, and Linda will never be seen or heard from again. And her, interestingly, her Mustang never left the parking lot. So her Mustang was still there in the morning? Her Mustang was still there, yeah. He, uh, Byron Claflin will tell police later that he thought that she would go stay with her mother since she had been thrown out. But she never arrived and apparently never left that parking lot in her Mustang. This is really interesting. Notably, her disappearance doesn't even make the news. Unfortunately, teenage... You talked about that free spirit in the 70s? Yes. Teenage runaways are common. As a matter of fact, in 1974, Akron police took reports on 1,882 of them. That's an average of 36 runaways every week. And that's more than twice the caseload they had handled just a decade earlier. So there's definitely a phenomenon going on there. Yes. And it's not just, um, it's just not, you know, Ohio. Uh, that I've heard of cases in Texas during the same, you know, 1970s that police really didn't keep track of people, you know, and... They, they, they said that, you know, hey, this was normal. People would leave. People would run away. People would move, you know. And it, It's true. And, you know, it sets up a really difficult situation for both the police and the families because you've got the cops juggling dozens of runaway reports, just assuming all these kids are runaways. But then you've got parents who absolutely are certain their child didn't run away. And they're trying to convince detectives, not my child. My child's different. And, you know, something sinister has happened. And the cops are like, yeah, you and the 35 other kids who went missing this week. So it just sets up a really difficult situation. And um, as a matter of fact, six months after Linda went missing, the Akron Beacon Journal did a front-page story on this trend of runaways and, and the frustration of parents who really believed their kids had met with something foul. And on the day that that story ran, that was March of 1975, on that day, there were 240 open cases of missing area teens. Wow. So Linda Pagano was just one of them. Right. That's one of the things people talk about with missing persons or people, you know, people that might have started a new life. It is not against the law to disappear. You can 
go wherever you want and not tell anybody. Right. At, at 17, there might be a little bit more concern. But, Correct. you know, she's, she's you know, it's clearly, I mean, the, the girl is taking vacations on her own. I mean, if that kind of information hadn't been relayed to the police, they probably thought more than ever, yeah, this is a girl who can take care of herself. So she, um, you know, even her best friend at this point thinks she's a runaway. And she would believe that for the next 40 years. Or at least she wanted to believe that because the alternative was too horrible to imagine. But I interviewed her friend um, last year, and she said, until they prove those bones are Linda's, I want to still believe that Linda ran away, left her family, and she's married and has kids and living a wonderful life somewhere. Well, anyway, police are, you know, they're investigating, they're doing, but it's really up to families at this point to do what they can. Um, You know, Linda's sister makes a flyer using Linda's last school photo, and the family offers a reward, and they're passing them out to all the gas stations and the businesses and the, the residents in the area. And, you know, the family even goes to the Beacon Journal and says, could you please write a story about Linda's disappearance? And the Beacon Journal says no, but again... She's one of 240 missing teens at that moment. Right. Most of them, or all of them, presumed to be a way of their own volition. Right. If every single one of those parents went to the IRB, that'd be a lot of stories. Yeah, they'd be writing about nothing else. Right. So. And obviously, most of those were not really missing. Right. Right. They were just gone voluntarily. Right. And so Linda's mom, sister, and brother, they know she's not a runaway, though. And Linda's brother, Mike, he begins to vocalize a belief that the others don't want to accept, that Byron Claflin had something to do with her disappearance. Now, you got to remember, he lived with him in a violent household, and he had bruises to prove it. He knows what he's capable of. He does. But, you know, the police are like, you know, there's no body. There's no sign of a struggle. There are no witnesses. We have absolutely no leads in this case. And the days turn into weeks, and the weeks turn into months, and the months turn into years. Uh, Byron Claflin, he dies in 1990. Linda's mother, Anne, died in 2012. that's heartbreaking. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. And then, just three years after Anne dies in 2015 something really remarkable happens and I love this part if if there's such a thing as a a silver lining to a murder mystery it's going to be Christina Skates for our listeners we need to confess that we got Christina on the phone so she could tell you her own story unfortunately we rookie podcasters have yet to learn the trick to getting a real quality audio from the phone it was our first real attempt at a phone interview and we made a mess of it so Christina knows our deepest apologies to her uh, but we got creative and here's what we did we cleaned up our interview with her as best we could and we added it to the Linda Pagano page on our website ohiomysteries.com and so you can listen to it there when you go to view the photos the documents and the video we've posted about Linda Uh, on that side the interview is audible but we aren't going to play it here because when we try it just translates like nails on a chalkboard (laughs) so we promise we are going to do our homework and nail that phone interview technology for future podcasts (laughs) but for tonight I'm going to tell you Christina's story 
So this takes us up to 2015, and Christina Skates is doing some genealogical research. She's browsing through an index of Cleveland cemetery burials that are online, looking for a relative when she comes across a curious notation. It's in the Pottersfield section of Highland Park Cemetery, an area where many graves are unmarked and their occupants well, Where exactly identify. is this, uh, this cemetery? It's technically Cleveland, okay. but it is surrounded by a suburb and please don't ask me to name that suburb. And name that suburb. Go. Remember. Okay. <laughs> it's toward. Uh, it's on the east side of of Cleveland. Okay. Okay. Um, but it's an area where you know they've they've got homeless people. They've got um, murder victims in there. The, the graves are just unmarked. The occupants unidentified. And Christina finds one interment that says unknown white female bones, about 20 years of age, found in Strongsville, buried in 1975, and the cause of death was listed as a gunshot wound to her head. Okay, so that's 40 years after these bones are buried and 41 years since Linda went missing. Correct. You said this index has a lot of unidentified people. Why did this one catch her attention? Well, she said this one tugged at her because it was close to her own age. Christina was 22 at the time she found this. And also because these bones were found in Strongsville, and that was just a 20-minute drive from where Christina grew up. And it really bothered her that someone somewhere was missing a daughter or a sister, and they didn't know she was here in this grave. And truth be told, Christina was always fascinated with true crime and, and cold cases. She's a 26-year-old biology major at Cleveland State University who grew up watching forensic files and unsolved mysteries. Does that sound like you? Sounds like me. I love that stuff. So she's not going to let this go. She searches the internet for any reference to bones being found in Strongsville in 1975 and comes up blank. So she goes to the library. When's well, the last time you went to the library, Steve? Um, I take my kids there here and there. I'm so, glad you a do. A couple months ago. Well, that's great. Yep. You know what? People think libraries are outdated, but I am here to tell you they are still exceptional repositories of information. Absolutely. So go check out your local library and see what they've got. It might <laughs> surprise you. So anyway, it doesn't take long for Christina to hit the jackpot. She's looking through newspaper microfilm, and she comes across a story about three teenage boys finding human bones on the banks of the Rocky River while strolling through Mill Stream Run Reservation. That's now, this is kind of new for her, right? She's not really an investigator type, you know? She's just... She's doing this. I don't think she's ever done this before, right? I, I don't think so either, but she is a member of a website called Reddit. And for people who don't know what that is, it's an online forum where people chat about cold cases. And actually, Reddit, she was on Reddit watching this group solve a 20-year-old murder mystery about a hitchhiker. Actually, it wasn't a murder mystery. It was a hitchhiker that was killed in a car, and because he was hitchhiking and the driver was dead they didn't know where he was picked up they didn't know anything about him and this reddit community solved it I, they called him grateful doe because he was wearing a grateful Dead okay. shirt so she's seen she's seen this in action before and she's she did so she has not herself i don't believe done this kind of thing but she's been watching people do it and she knows hey that's a resource i could use that is a I'm resource really interested in this right 
and she's going to do it. But let me let me get back to to the library first. She's looking for the newspapers, and she comes across the story of these these teens. It's on February fifth, nineteen seventy five, when they find those bones, and the Cuyahoga County coroner determines they belong to a young white woman who apparently was shot, and the skull is missing its mandible, but there are six teeth intact, and those are the only hope for them identifying something like this in 1975. Right. So um, Metro Parks Rangers send out an alert to law enforcement everywhere of of the skeleton being found. Um, And this report quickly becomes available to investigators all over the country, and some interesting inquiries come in. Uh, Authorities searching for more victims of serial killer Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. They want to look at those teeth. And investigators looking for the kidnapped heiress, Patty Hearst, she was still kidnapped and missing at this point, they also ask for the file. Huh. But they don't match. Nobody matches. And a spokesman with a coroner says, until someone comes in with dental records that can be matched, nothing can be done. So this is still back in 1975. We're still in 1975. And Metro Parks, they're they're handling the investigation because it was found in... Because it was found in a Metro Metro Park. Park. Yes, exactly. And so on May 15th, 1975, after several weeks of various jurisdictions publicly fighting over who's responsible for paying to bury this That's sad. uh, Jane Doe is placed in this pauper's grave. So now we're going to jump back up to 2015, okay? And Christina, she's armed with all of this information, these newspaper stories she's found, and she begins calling Strongsville Police, Cleveland Police, the Cuyahoga County Coroner's Office, no one shares her curiosity about these bones until she gets to the Cleveland Metro Parks and she finds a ranger by the name of Lieutenant Don Silvis and he says, you know what, let me look into this. And he finds the old file, he dusts it off, and he sends Christina this big electronic file Good for him. with everything. Good for him. It, good for him, absolutely, right. because you know what, if he hadn't, Linda Pacano would still be unidentified. Right. It's, it's, you know, it's the same thing with deciding who sh- who's going to bury her, you know, and it seems like nobody really cared that she was interested in finding out who these bones, the, the bones, these bones belong to. Right. And baloney, I guess. As these bones belong to, yeah, right. there you go. I'm not going to repeat that. Right. So, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, there are several people that play a role here, and if they didn't, if any of one of these people broke down and gave up this wouldn't have happened. So Silvis is one of them. Christina is the other. So now Christina, I told you she's a member of Reddit. So she goes onto that website and she uploads the whole file into a forum online. And one of her fellow Reddit users um, sees it and asks for permission and transfers it to another internet crime-solving community called Web Sleuth. Of course, Web Sleuth is huge. Web Sleuth. Yes. And there is where it caught the attention of Carl Kopelman. So now here's the next piece of the puzzle because okay. if he drops the ball, it's not going to happen. So this guy's pretty interesting. He's 55 years old. He was a certified public accountant in California. Okay. And he put his career on hold to care for his mom. So in his spare time, he decided to train himself as a forensic artist. <laughs> That's a pretty big leap. It seems like it. And I'd, I'd asked him about this because I had the, the pleasure of interviewing 
interviewing him for a story. But even though he was never a professional artist, he did study human anatomy in college, right. and he used to draw caricatures for fun. And apparently he was pretty confident that these skill sets would carry over into the world of forensic imaging. Um, but in the case of these bones, he has so little to work with. He's got a photo showing a side view of a partial skull caked in mud, and there are some bits of blonde hair, and that's it. So Carl, he looks at this picture, and even he's like, ah, what am I going to do with this? He puts it away, and about a year later, he pulls it back out and thinks, why not give it a shot? Huh. Well, because of the blonde hair, he, he gives this image light locks. He picks a neutral hairstyle for that decade. He's missing a mandible, so he can only make an educated guess at her jawline. And in June of 2016, Carl posts his vision of what this girl might have looked like on his Facebook page, where he shares all of his John Doe and Jane Doe renderings for law enforcement and amateur sleuths who are trying to solve cold cases. Now, does he like tag Christina in this, or does Christina just see it pop up? I think he was communicating with Christina, okay. and she knew that he was doing it, and I think they had conversations about that. So um, if you have any trouble finding Carl, you can find Carl Kopelman, K-O-P-P-E-L-M-A-N. You can find his Facebook page and see all of his great work. Yeah, I'm definitely going to do that. Uh, if you have any trouble finding it, I put a direct link to it on our Linda Pagano page on OhioMysteries.com. You can go there and click on the link. Before moving on, did, has police used him before? Is they have. Okay. And he has actually been successful with wow. some of his renderings who, that came out looking very much okay. like the, the victim when they discovered who the victim was. All right, so he posts a so, picture. Let's see what has. So he posts a picture, and, you know, people, they take a look at it. They're offering sympathy for the girl and, and her unknown family. No one can give the face a name. And when you see what Carl came up with and you compare it to Linda's high school photo, I think you're going to be amazed at his skill. I have both his picture and Linda's photo on the website. But... I don't want to overstate the value of the photo because in the end, the rendering did not solve the case. What solved the case was Carl now has this bug about this girl. And he finds himself talking to somebody at the Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner's Office on a completely unrelated case. And he takes the opportunity to ask about that girl. What about those Strongsville bones? To which the coroner's office replies, what bones? So Carl takes the case file number from the records that Christina had uploaded to the internet, gives them to the coroner's office, they look at them and realize they had never listed them on this national database that everybody uses called NamUs. It's a, a database for missing persons. Okay. So it wasn't even up on that site for anybody to find. Huh. So the coroner's office corrects that, gets the file online, and guess what happens? A uh, name pops up. <laughs> well, it's going to pop up for somebody. It's in the database. Down in Akron, Ohio, home of Lynn huh. Pagano, there's a, an Akron Sergeant Jeff Smith, and he's new to the juvenile division in December of 2016, and that's a job that includes all missing persons cases, and he's thrown himself into the role. He's taken it on him, to himself to learn how to train on how to use NamUs, that database, and he starts putting all of Akron's old missing persons cases on it. Oh, so this is new for, okay. It. Yeah. 
So, yeah, apparently Akron did not have their their missing people on that database. As and of Sergeant 2016. Smith, right. Okay. Give so me, December I've heard of 2016. Yeah. yeah. Don't you love the name of it? Yeah. Name yeah. us. Yeah. Right. You know, it's exactly. like we're missing. Name us. I love that. Um, so he types in all the info he has on Linda Pagano because she's missing. And what happens? Voila, he finds a match. Here is this record that was just newly submitted by the Cuyahoga County Coroner's Office. The bones were found in Strongsville. They were found just months after Linda went missing. The timing matches, the location, it's not far. The victim's age, the small build. He then compares the photo of the skull's teeth with Linda Pagano's dental records, which he has, and just eyeballing them, they look the same. So he's very optimistic when he puts in a request to exhume those bones. Now, this is going to be a long and agonizing wait. It's going to take a year for the Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner's Office to get the bones exhumed. First, there's a delay because they want to let Kent State University do the work as a class project. And then when they finally open the grave, they find the wrong bones. Oh. Yeah. Turns out the, the map of that old and unmarked part of the cemetery was off. And it took a while to figure out how to realign the map so that it was actually matching the graves that were there. Okay. So they did it. Finally, they got the bones out and they sent them off to NamUs, who has its own forensic team. And then just a few months ago, this past summer, NamUs confirmed that the bones were Linda's. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, so after 44 years, Linda Pagano goes from being a missing persons case to an unsolved murder case. So we've really just exchanged one mystery for another, but at least her family, her brother and her sister, you know, they have some resolution. They know she didn't run away. How, how involved were they with, um, did they know that this was going on or did they just, oh, so they knew Christina was looking into it? Uh, they they did. And they also, uh, I think Sergeant Smith had been in touch with them during the whole process. I think I found a match. We're going to exhume your sister's body. So they were on pins and needles for a year. What I, great people, really, what yeah. great people to keep going, you know, Christina and everybody else. I mean, without Christina getting this ball rolling, of course, you know, it would be, it'd still be... You know, right. wondering what happened to Linda and... Right. You know. I mean, I love this idea of crowdsourcing. You know, the idea of strangers who don't even know each other working together to solve a case that police might not even have the resources to keep looking at. I mean, they've got so many modern crimes they're trying to solve. Who can spend hours and hours looking at a 44-year-old case? But there are people who at home who have time. Right. And, and that's what they're doing. Some of them are hobbies. You know, that's what they do. They sit yeah. at home and that's their hobby is to try to figure out stuff. You know, the first time I ever heard of uh, web sleuths was I was watching the. Uh, there's a serial killer that they're you know, that they think is out there in Long Island. So I was watching a documentary on that, and they kept bringing in these people who are on web sleuths about you know all the clues they found. I thought that was pretty interesting. I I went on it for the first time a couple of weeks ago, and it's so detailed. I mean, every time there's just a little bit of evidence, somebody will jump on there and add it to that person's file. And it's just creating these great data banks of information. Hmm. 
So I, you know, now I know there are some valid concerns with crowdsourcing. There's always the fear that amateurs are going to do something that is going to point the finger at the wrong person. And I know that's, that's a possibility and probably has happened. Or they might do something that screws up an investigation. But at least in this case, it seems to me that if Christina Skates and Carl Kopelman and even Don Silvis at the Metro Parks, if they hadn't gotten involved, Linda would still be a missing person and her family would never have that closure. So, and Christina pointed out there are at least 50 other unidentified bodies in that pauper's grave. And I'm thinking, can it hurt for people to go ahead and take a look at that index and see if there's anything there to work with? You know, who else has the time to do it? So, yeah, exactly. With all that intrigue, this story could probably have been made into a book or a movie, although one without an ending. Yep. Thanks for sharing our campfire with us tonight, listeners. Remember, we've uploaded photos, newspaper clippings, and more on this case to our website at ohiomysteries.com. And while you're there, look for the Patreon link if you'd like to support us so we can keep bringing you these mysteries. Patreon will accept donations for as little as a dollar a month. And we offer some great perks for those who can donate a little more. The best thing you can do for us, however, if you like this podcast, please tell your friends and family, leave us a nice review on iTunes, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And we'll see you next week for another Ohio Mystery. Until then, keep the fire burning and happy camping. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.